Uh, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to our class on the book of First Peter. And this week is our second class in this book. So we started First Peter last week, and <clears throat> we got through the first seven verses last week of chapter one. Before we start today, I'd like to have a word of prayer and we'll get right into our class. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you that we can study from your word. We pray for a special blessing as we study from the book of 1 Peter. May it enlighten our minds and give us understanding about your plans for our life. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of review from last week, some of the high points that we touched on. If you look, just starting even in verse 1, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was an eyewitness for three and a half years to Christ's ministry. So his perspective of Bible truth was shaped in some degree by the fact that he was an eyewitness to Jesus for three and a half years and of course he had his conversion experience at the end of that period. Then we saw in verse 2 he describes how that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. And if you go to Romans chapter 8 the famous verse who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, and then the very next phrase is, it is God that justifieth. So it's interesting, the word elect means chosen of God, and in 1 Peter, to be chosen of God or elect describes having the experience of sanctification, and in Romans, being elect or chosen of God describes having the experience of justification. So one of the key points that we described last week is that the Bible writers do not differentiate between justification and sanctification in the salvation process. Justification and sanctification are part of the salvation experience. And of course, you know the verse 2 Thessalonians 2.13, which says, God has chosen you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification. So then we went on, verse 3 talks about how we've been um, begotten to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm not going to really spend much time on that other than to say if you link that to the book of Romans, a belief in the resurrection is linked to justification by faith and you'll have to study that on your own. But we did that last week. And then we continued on um, all the way down. So we see in verses 4 and 5 that we have salvation Verse 6, we rejoice even though we may go through a period of trial because we have salvation. And verse 7, of course, the famous verse, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And of course, this was written in 66 AD. The first century Christian church was going through severe trials of their faith. And so what Peter is telling them is that, hey, you are going through trials because of your faith. But just as gold is tried in the fire and it's purified, the trial of your faith brings forth even better fruit or it's more precious than gold that is tried with fire. And so 
we're going to look at the rest of the chapter, verses 8 to 25 today, <clears throat> how the experience of salvation and the experience of the trial of our faith are related to each other. And we'll see that there is a connection. So picking up in verse 9, or verse 8, sorry. So verse 7 talks about the trial of our faith, and the hope is that we will be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8 it says, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So it's interesting. In verse 8, Peter starts off speaking of Christ saying, Whom having not seen, you love. Now, Peter did see Jesus. So he's speaking to people who didn't have the privilege that he had of being with Christ for three and a half years. But he's saying, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And the reason being is that because of Jesus Christ, and we saw that in the first few verses, because of his, his, the sprinkling of his blood, because he has been resurrected, he has prepared for us or reserved for us the experience of salvation. So even though we haven't seen Jesus, we love him because we've experienced righteousness by faith. So because we have faith in Christ, we love him. And continuing on, in whom though ye, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And again, for the early Christian church who was going through tr severe trials, and remember these were people who because they professed the name of Christ, were putting their lives on the line. It wasn't like you could just say, hey, I'm a Christian and and just go about your, your business like you can here in our country. It's like if you profess the name of Christ in the first century, you were putting your life on the line. So clearly people who profess Christ must have loved him very dearly to be able to put their lives on the line. And they knew that even though they hadn't seen him, that this was a being who came to this earth and died for them so that they could have eternal salvation and that he's been resurrected again and is in heaven interceding on their behalf. And of course, we should have the same experience. So even though we haven't seen Christ, we love him. Even though we have not seen him, we believe and we rejoice with unspeakable joy. Now, do we ask yourself this question, when you think about Jesus Christ and the salvation he has given to us, does that cause unspeakable joy in our hearts? Or is it, yeah, I've known that my whole life. Well, um, let's talk about the beast now. And if you have the experience of putting your life on the line for your faith, and I'll have to be honest, I'd, I don't have to put my life on the line to profess the name of Christ, not to this point, but the, the issue that will eventually come to pass in this country will come and we will have to have had an experience that is preparing us for that. So for example, um, how do you do around associates at work or school who don't believe what we believe? Do we minimize our distinctiveness and just try to fit in? 
or are we confident of our walk with God that we stand firmly and kindly for what we believe so that everyone knows where we stand? If we're not having that experience now, what's going to happen when things get even worse? So the first century Christian church, these people professed Christ and they were putting their lives on the line by doing so. And they had the experience of when they would think of Jesus Christ, they would have unspeakable joy. We should have that same experience. When we think of Jesus Christ, we should have unspeakable joy. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. So what's the end of our faith? The salvation of our soul. So faith, and that's pretty obvious, faith and salvation go hand in hand, and that is connecting the concept of righteousness by faith. So, so Peter is just sort of getting an introduction into these concepts, but clearly we can see that trials and faith and salvation go together. And in verse 2 again, we going back to that, the word that Peter used to describe the salvation experience was sanctification. Now, you may ask, why did Peter choose to use the word sanctification instead of justification when he was describing the elect who are sanctified? Well, if you continue through the chapter, it's talking about the trial of our faith and the salvation that we have. How is, I guess what Peter is trying to demonstrate is how is it that we determine who has saving faith? And the answer is those who allow the trials of their faith to purify them or to grow them in their process of sanctification are demonstrating they have righteousness by faith or the salvation experience. So this is another um, point of self-examination. It's the nice thing about studying the Bible is we just ask ourselves, what do I do? I'm not thinking about, hey, you know, brother so-and-so needs to be hearing this. It's like, no, what do I do in this situation? So you have a bad experience at work or at home with your spouse or with a sibling or your roommate or whatever. <clears throat> do you allow that experience to cause you to surrender more completely to God and to allow His Spirit to come forth from you? Or do you just kind of snap off and, and have the, the human experience? Those are the little trials of our faith that are building us for the bigger trials of our faith. And so when we pass through those trials, it purifies us and we will be more precious than gold. And again, the end of our faith is the salvation of our soul. So Peter's saying, look, the trial of your faith may not feel so good, but it's purifying you and the end of your faith is salvation. Now, continuing on in verse 10, and I'm gonna read verses 10 through 12 here. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, 
when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. you. Now there's a few points that I want to spend a little bit of time on in these three verses. The first thing is, it talks about the salvation in verse 10, that the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. And if you just want to write this down, in Romans chapter 1 verse 2, Paul makes a similar point, and I'll just read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 where he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So a basic point, but Paul in Romans 1 and Peter in 1 Peter 1 is saying that the prophets in the Old Testament testified of this gospel experience. And and so, if you read the New Testament, because people say, well, the gospel's in the New Testament, and it is, if you read the New Testament, the New Testament authors tell you that the gospel was also found in the Old Testament. So don't let a theologian tell you that the gospel is only New Testament theology when the very authors of the New Testament are saying the gospel is also found in the Old Testament. It's in both Testaments. I think we already know that, but I just wanted to make that point. So the, the salvation that we experience was written about, and notice the prophets inquired and searched diligently. And it's interesting, Peter saying, look, they searched and inquired of it, but th this grace has come unto you, or it's unto us. We are living in the time after Christ's death on the cross. So everything in the Old Testament that pointed to that, all of the authors who were writing about that, they were writing for us who would live after that period of time. And in verse 11 and 12, Peter sort of summarizes that by saying, and we already read verse 11, and so it talks about how they testified of the sufferings of Christ. I mean, just read Isaiah 53. That's a clear example of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. But notice verse 12, and this is an important point that I want to make. Verse 12 says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Now notice, the things that were revealed to the Old Testament prophets, and you could say now in our day and age, even the authors of the New Testament, it was revealed and they ministered, but they are specifically to us. The messages are specifically for us, living after the time of the death of Christ. Again, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. So there are certain theologians who utilize what I would describe as the 
the method of higher criticism that say, if you want to understand a passage of scripture, you have to understand the original intent and the context and the time period for which the author was writing, because that was his purpose. And, you know, there might be an application to us today, but, and some will even say, no, there's not even an application for us today. It's only when that passage was written for that time. And what Peter is actually saying is, look, when the Old Testament prophets and I'll say even the New Testament prophets wrote the Word of God, it was primarily for us at the end of time. And in Peter's time, it was for the Christians of the first century. So for a, a first century Christian to look at the book of Isaiah and they'll read Isaiah 53 and they say, well, you know, maybe Isaiah was just talking about you know, someone during his time that was going to be persecuted for living a good life. Maybe that's what he was talking about. But that's not how the Bible works. The Bible works where the Holy Spirit will inspire a writer at any time in history to write a message that will be relevant for a specific point in time. Higher criticism doesn't understand that concept, but if you understand that concept of Scripture, you'll understand that if you read a passage of Scripture and you tie it in together with other books of the Bible, you will often find that the messages, especially in Daniel and Revelation and also the New Testament and the Old Testament, all of those messages have a special application for God's people down at the end of time. Was there an application when it was first written? Sure there was. But there's also um, an application or the, the point of the messages for those living today. You had a comment, Dave? Right, sure. Right. Right, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> so he was, the, just to repeat for those who couldn't hear, um, there are some in the the world of higher criticism that go too far by saying the passage of scripture is only for its original intent, but there are certain principles of scholarship that if used properly um, are helpful in understanding scripture, and I would agree with that. It's, it's good to know what the context and the time was when an author was writing a passage of scripture. That's helpful to understand some of the content and context. But under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the author, and this is now my additional comment, the author may not have understood completely what he was writing about. Um, and Daniel didn't understand everything he was writing about. Um, and those of us after 1798 have gained further understanding of the book of Daniel. So you have a comment back there. Right. So, for those of you who may not have heard the comment, Ellen White mentions that the prophets wrote more for our day than they did for theirs, and Peter's basically making <clears throat> the same point here. So let's get into some of the meat of the rest of the chapter here. I just wanted to make a little point about that. Starting in verse 13. It says, Wherefore, <clears throat> gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, 
not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now there's a lot that we could talk about in these four verses that we just read. <clears throat> but in verse 13, it starts off with the word wherefore. So Paul is summarizing. Paul is summarizing. He's, we've talked about the experience of salvation with sanctification and obedience in verse 2, how we have been begotten to a livelihood by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, how that we have we're kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, that even though we have the trial of our faith, it produces something more precious than gold tried with fire. We rejoice with joy unspeakable. We have the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. And by the way, all of the Bible writers have written about the salvation for us today. Wherefore, gird up the loins of the mind and be sober. Peter's saying, look, you have all of Scripture written to help you have the experience of salvation. There's not just one book of the Bible or five books. There are 66 books in the Bible that will help us to understand salvation. So because of all of that, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end. Now it's interesting, the word sober obviously describes in a literal sense someone who avoids intoxicating wine or, or beer or alcoholic beverages. This is obviously used in a spiritual context to be sober. And yet it's interesting in the last days we see that most of the world is drunken with the wine of Babylon. So Peter is saying, look, be sober. And the rest of the world is drunk with the wine of Babylon. So if you're drunk with the wine of Babylon, the immediate context would be you're outside the experience of salvation. So what Peter is describing here is something that will help us to understand how to not partake of that wine of Babylon. And of course, we know that wine represents false doctrine. So those who are sober are not partaking of false doctrine. So gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we hope to the end that's for the grace that's brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is likely describing the second coming. None of us are worthy of God's grace. We really aren't. And those of us who will be in the kingdom will only be there by the grace of God, not by anything that we have done. And when Jesus comes, he will bring his grace with him to take his children home. So we gird up the loins of our mind, we're sober, we hope for the, the grace that will be brought when Jesus comes. Verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So. Now that we are children of God, we don't live the way we used to when we didn't know any better. And we're going to see this a little bit more in the chapter. It's interesting, it talks about the former lusts. And just to give a little preview of where we're heading, there is 
the lust of the flesh or walking after the spirit. So Peter's making reference to fashioning ourselves according to the lust of the flesh when we were ignorant. But when you've been born again and you're children, obedient children of God, you don't live according to the lust of the flesh. And then he makes the illustration, but as he which hath called you is holy. So what does it mean to be obedient children? What does it mean to not live after the flesh? Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy. So who has called you? God. What is God? He is holy. Isaiah 57, 15 says the same thing in many other verses. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And the word conversation would better be translated conduct or the way you live your life. So sure that includes speech, but also it includes every other aspect of your life. Now think about this, and then verse 16 says, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy, and that's cited from Leviticus 11.44. Now, <clears throat> what we have seen so far is, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we've been, we're elect according to sanctification of the Spirit, obedience and sprinkling of the blood. We have the experience of the trial of our faith, which makes us more precious than gold tried in the fire. We have the, with our faith, we have the hope of salvation. We see that all of the Bible has pointed to the salvation. We're to told to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober because of the salvation experience. And then Peter gets very explicit and says, when you have this experience as obedient children, be holy as God is holy, because he says, be ye holy for I am holy. And again, the question is how do we go from walking after the lust of the flesh to walking after the spirit? Well, one of the ways that Peter is describing, we've talked about this already, is the trial of our faith. The trial of our faith is an opportunity for us to be surrendered to God and to allow him to live out his life through us so that the impurities in our life will be burned out. As the impurities in gold are burned out when, when the gold is put in the fire, when we go through trials, the unholiness in our life is removed. And so Peter then says, okay, you're not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And we're going to see how this ties in further as we go through chapter 1. Now notice verse 17. <clears throat> verse 17 says, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now this is interesting. <clears throat> Peter talks about be obedient children, don't fashion yourselves according to the former lusts. Be holy in the way that God is holy. And of course, the only way to do that is through faith, by surrendering our lives to Him. And then he says, and by the way, just remember, the Father is going to judge every man according to his works. So what's the judgment going to be based on? According to every man's works. And what has Peter used to describe men's work? It's either 
fashioning ourselves according to the lust of the flesh or living a life of holiness. That's basically the two options in the judgment that Peter has set up so that when you get to verse 17 and every man is judged according to his work, that is basically what's being described. Now again, this is not describing our own works because our own righteousness is as filthy rags. What we're gonna see as we go continue through the chapter is that as we are children of God born again, it is Christ living his life through us. And it's only through that that we can have a life of holiness. We can't be holy of ourselves, there's no way. But if we allow Christ to come into our hearts, we have his righteousness, we have his holiness. And then when we come to the judgment, instead of us being seen as walking according to the lust of the flesh, we are seen as having Christ living out his life in us. And so we're told, because of the judgment to come, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Or how about try fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Same concept. <clears throat> Starting Then verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, Peter's going to make some comparisons here. <clears throat> you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, or from the traditions of your fathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So, if just looking at the direct comparison, if silver and gold is corruptible, what would the precious blood of Christ be? It's incorruptible. So the things of this world, the things that we, from the lust of the flesh, gold and silver, or vain conversation, living a vain life, the tradition of our fathers, those are corruptible things, and those are not the things that redeem us. They are corruptible. We are redeemed by that which is incorruptible, which is the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, some of you who have a marginal reading for the word spot in verse 19 will note that that word also can be translated without fault. So Christ is a lamb without blemish and without fault. We're redeemed with his blood. And we're going to see how this ties in with God's last day people because Christ is a lamb without blemish, without fault. And in chapter 2, in verse 22, it says, Christ did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So Christ was without fault, no guile was in his mouth. And in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are found to be without fault, and no guile was in their mouth. So it's interesting. Ch chapter 1 says, Be holy as God is holy. It talks about how Christ was a, the lamb without blemish or spot or fault. He also has no guile in his mouth. And the 144,000 have the same experience. So in a, in a sense, 1 Peter is written for the 144,000. And since we are God's last day people who are striving to be among that group, 1 Peter is written for us. 
So if you want to know how to be part of the 144,000, study First Peter. Another book to study is the book of James. We can talk about that some other time. But notice, verse 19, we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We should never forget that Christ shed his blood for us, and that should cause unspeakable joy for us, as Peter spoke about earlier in the chapter. Continuing on, I think we'll finish the chapter today. Um, verse 20, speaking of Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for ye. Now again, Revelation 13:8 describes how Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Peter makes a similar point here, that Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, and he was manifest in these last times for ye. It's interesting, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews, who is Paul, and Peter describe, or uses, use the phrase, these last times. This, Peter, 1 Peter and Hebrews were both written about 66 AD, four years before the destruction of Jerusalem, and that was a type of the last days. Jesus created the destruction of Jerusalem as a type of the last days in Matthew 24. So if Jesus can do that, the other authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did the same thing. So Jesus was manifested in these last times, just before the destruction of Jerusalem. But the final last time, so to speak, is just before Jesus comes. But Christ, in the context of 1 Peter 1, was manifest in the first century just before the destruction of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Verse 21, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now we spent a fair amount of time talking about the importance of believing in Jesus being raised from the dead. I'll just make a, a, a quick passing point again. In Romans 4, Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able to perform. And then Paul says it, it was not imputed to his sake alone, but to us also if we believe on him that raised up Jesus from the dead. Then chapter 6 says that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what we're believing when we believe on him who raised Jesus from the dead is that, that God will raise us up to walk in a new life or have the new birth experience just as Jesus was raised from the dead. And we already talked about that last week. Now, in the last few verses here, there's some interesting points. Verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So this is the experience of um, Christian unity. What's our experience with our brethren at church? So if we have had our souls purified through the Spirit, we should have love of the brethren and we should love one another with a pure heart fervently. So here's just something to think about. <clears throat> if the people that you like least in your life are people that you know at church, something's wrong. There's something seriously wrong with your Christian experience. If the people you like least in your life are people that you go to church with, something's not working in that salvation experience. So, and believe it or not, there's plenty of people who have that experience. So if you're having that experience, I encourage you to give your life to the Lord and to have the experience of love of the brethren and to love one another with a pure heart fervently. And it looks like we have about three minutes to go here and we have three verses, so we should be able to do this. this is starting in verse 23. 
Now, here's the first time Peter uses the phrase being born again. He says being born again. So what he's described in the whole chapter, this salvation experience, sanctification, being holy as God is holy, that's being born again or loving one another fervently. That's being born again. And notice, it's not of corruptible seed. Remember verse 18, how we were redeemed not with corruptible things? When we're born again, we're not born of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And then I always kind of wondered why Peter uses this illustration in verses 24 and 25. Maybe some of you had already seen this, but notice verse 24. <clears throat> he says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. <clears throat> notice this, verse 24. All flesh is as grass, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. <clears throat> In verse 23, we have the comparison of being born again of incorruptible seed. And then there's corruptible seed. What that means is if you think about a seed, you plant something. If it grows and it's incorruptible, that means that it survives. Whatever hits it, it continues to grow and it lives. It's like the evergreens. But corruptible seed, it's planted, it grows, and when it's tried, it withers away. And what Peter is saying is all flesh is as grass. Now, what does it mean? What is flesh? In John chapter 3, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what's the corruptible seed? That which is born of the flesh. What's the incorruptible seed? That which is born of the spirit. And so here's your options in First Peter. You're either born of incorruptible seed and you have the experience of salvation, or you have corruptible seed and you walk after the flesh. What does it mean to walk after the flesh? Read Romans 7. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. And he talks about, um, I am carnal, sold under sin. You're a slave to sin if you're sold to that. So p these are people who know what's right, but they still live after the flesh. What Peter is saying is, all flesh is as grass, but if we are born of incorruptible seed, we will endure forever. And he uses the illustration of the word of God, which lives in and abides forever, as that which gives us the power to have that experience of being born again. That's why the centurion was described as having so great faith when he told Jesus, speak the word only. So let's have that experience. Let's not be like grass that withers and dies. Let's have that incorruptible seed of being born again. Thank you, everyone. We'll continue chapter 2 next week.